Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of the Mostly Erlang podcast. We are today going to talk about WebMachine, the framework for doing semantically correct HTTP in Erlang. And with us today, we have uh, Justin. Hi. And Fred Bear. Hello. And Simon St. Lawrence, same, same gang as last, last week. Hi there. And I'm Zach Kesson. Justin, since you guys are responsible for creating WebMachine, uh, why don't you tell us what you were intending when you, when you guys thought it up and how it came about? Sure. So when we first started building data infrastructure at Basho, we didn't actually think we were going to be an airline shop. We thought most of the people building stuff on top of our underlying systems were going to want to use, you know, other languages to interact with that. And so the initial reason for web machine was to provide a really, really well-behaved HTTP layer on top of some infrastructure written in Erlang. And that was what made us go think about writing an HTTP system in the first place. But the inspiration for doing something as weird and unique as Web Machine was really a frustration that almost everything we knew of in any language out there uh, broke the HTTP model and and replaced it with new ones that didn't feel right. And so, you know, we went for something that we backed all the way up and didn't assume that it was going to look like any other framework. And, you know, Web Machine is what resulted. That's pretty cool. We've, we've been using it at our startup for uh, since we started. And I'm, I'm, you know, in it day in, day out, and I'm really enjoying it for the most part. I'm glad to hear it. One of the – go ahead. Yeah, no, it's um pretty good. It's been getting us – where we want to go. One of the things that I, I go ahead, Simon. Well, I was just going to throw in, I mean, I, I haven't actually managed to find time to play with web machine, but web machine has already taught me more about HTTP than basically any other documentation I've read. The diagram is obviously a classic, but just looking through, you know, sample code and the explanations that are there really breaks down that whole protocol handling process to something that I think is a lot more approachable than the usual. Ah, I got a request. What do I do with it? So it's beautiful. Oh, I keep, I keep threatening to take the diagram, stick it on a thumb drive and take it down to the print shop down the street from our office and get it blown up and stick it on the window out next to my office, which would also fight the glare I get from my, my east facing window. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just want to do that, with, especially if I can make it so I can like write on it with a whiteboard marker, because I think that'd be like really convenient. Yeah, that would be cool. There's two funny things about the diagram that I think not everyone realizes. The very first version of that diagram, the one most people see now is the third edition, really. The very first one was much smaller, much less complete, and so on. But it was one of the inspirations for doing Web Machine the way it was. And at Basha, we didn't have anything to do with that. A guy named Alan Dean made the very first version. And he did it just to sort of understand some things about HTTP. And I started talking to him when we first started making Web Machine. In the process of making something that was actually executable and not just a picture, you know, we quickly figured out that a lot had to be added to it, a lot had to be changed. And so, you know, I made the subsequent couple of versions. But, you know, the, it started out as just an abstract diagram of HTTP. But under the hood now in Web Machine, the fundamental engine in Web Machine actually has the same structure as that diagram. It's not 
abstract anymore. That is a diagram of how web machine makes decisions. And it's also not a static image. It's how the live debugger looks and works. Oh, I love the live debugger. I think I live in that thing. Actually, I do a lot of work, uh, testing work with CURL, where I'll be just hitting it, you know, try something in the browser, then just move it over to CURL, especially since the latest versions of Chrome. If you right-click on a Ajax call in the debugger, Chrome debugger, you can get it as a CURL and just cut and paste it into your shell. So I wrote a little thing today where basically it'll run a CURL call, and then on my Mac just pop open a browser with the appropriate URL for the, the debug trace without me having to, you know, do anything. It just pops it right open for me. I'll put a link to a gist I made of that in the show notes because it's pretty cool. But I think that's like just horribly convenient. Yeah, all credit goes to Brian Fink, one of the other web machine committers, for realizing that was even possible and creating that in web machine uh, quite a long time ago now. I think he added that in 2009. And, you know, I really like the model he used in it, which is that you, know, you can look at each decision that a request passed through and see the internal state before and after that function. So you don't just see what happened. You can actually look at what the state was at each point along the request. That, to me, is the really cool part about it. What would be really cool if you could add somehow was if you do an IO, an IO form, you know, any IO, IO format logging within each state, if you could put that in the diagram as well so that it would capture those. I don't know how easy or hard that would be to do. So that you could I think it'd be, it'd be pretty tricky if you did it directly through IO format or something like that because, you know, we're not replacing those kinds of calls with this our own. If you used the web machine logger format, it would be possible to add that. It doesn't do that today, but, you know, if you're actually using loggers that are in web machine, it would be possible to do that, although it doesn't show that today. That'd be you pretty could, cool. You could probably do it by replacing the group leader and intercepting all the I.O. that's going through the processes that are doing the work, but then people would probably complain because that's why EUnit is doing, and people are always confused by that behavior. But it's possible right. to capture the output at that point. Yeah, we could do it, but it'd be you know just so invasive like that that I'd be right. worried about the impact it would have on the rest of the program. True. Yeah, I, I, I think you'd want to have it through some sort of macro or some sort of other mechanism besides straight I.O. format. But it would still be pretty cool. And you guys use uh, Web Machine is used as part of RIAC and other, your other products at Masho? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the HTTP interface to RIAC is a Web Machine, a set of Web Machine resources. And RIAC CS, which is our cloud storage system, looks a lot like S3. The HTTP API there, which is, you know, Essentially, recreating the Amazon S3 API, uh, that's all implemented as web machine resources. That was actually really tricky because Amazon's S3 API is not well-behaved HTTP, but we didn't get to choose, right, because we're trying to be reasonably compatible. So you see big style differences between the REAC HTTP interface in web machine, which we designed, and the REAC CS one, which is modeling itself after S3. So what we did there, by we, I mostly mean Reed Draper and Kelly McLaughlin, who wrote that, those pieces, is write two layers where there's essentially one that looks just like S3 and passes on a lot of the work, and then there's a more well-behaved one that does most of the work after things have been translated and passed on. Another cool thing you could do with the diagram, it's not there now, but is have some sort of option, I guess you can do it in the debugger, to see which functions are called at each stage. Because it doesn't, 
it doesn't really tell you that. You mean which of your resource functions? Yeah. Which you know, if I if I if I want to hook a function into you know, be malformed at B nine, you know, which function? Of, what's the function name I'm supposed to use? Yeah, no, that, uh, there's not a one to one tying there. The tricky thing is that some of the functions that you expose actually can be called multiple times through a web machine. And this is actually one of the gotchas lots of people run into that's worth mentioning is that web machine assumes a pretty darn functional style of programming out of the resources. And so if you don't write your web machine module functions to be pretty darn idempotent most of the time, you can come, you can get some surprises, right? We might call the function, for instance, that tells us what the e tag is or something like that of a given resource at three or four different decisions if it's relevant to them. And if that function goes off and does weird things and might be different each time, well, that's undefined and probably disastrous behavior you're going to get. It's really designed for functional programmers. I mean, the impotency in general when you're working with whatever is distributed and online is a property you want to have. I'm adding a link right now, which is idempotency is not uh, idempotence is not a medical condition, uh, which is a pretty nice paper regarding what stuff can fail and why you want idempotency even outside of HTTP and whatnot. It's generally a good property to have because you don't know what's going to fail or if it failed or just timed out and whatnot. And being able to just replay an action without breaking anything is fairly useful. Do you guys have any document, anything you've written on sort of patterns of, you know, how to most effectively, where they should hook certain types of actions and processing posts and things like that in? There are a few blog posts. We've written some. A bunch of other people have written others. I, you know, I think the best examples are the actual apps that do that. But there's not really a, you know, an extended set of explanation of best ways to write it. It's more that there's collected knowledge on the mailing list and elsewhere. Um, uh, I think was it was it Ferd? Were you mentioning the idempotence article a minute ago? Yep. Yeah. So that's if I remember right, that's Pat Helland, and he absolutely yep. He gave a talk on that at, at our Recon conference last fall, and this is essentially what what the talk was. And and I think you know one of the neat things about the growth of HTTP and people talking about REST, even if they're not understanding what they're talking about and all that, is this right recognition. That that is a property that when you can have it, so many things about distributed systems are easier to get right. Right? Eventually consistent systems are actually easy to reason about if the things happening to them are, you know, item potent and commutative and so on. And people learning just how an HTTP get should behave is sometimes a useful first step in the direction of understanding properties like that, I think. Yeah, the idea that if you call it six times, it shouldn't change the you know, it shouldn't have any effects more than calling it once that the user will care about. I mean, obviously it's going to throw some log messages up and other stuff, but it's not, you know, it's not a side. The idea, the idea is that retrying the operation should be safe and not break stuff, basically. If I call and, this, and this is a difference, I think, between recently how people uh, not getting rest right were using put as the new HTTP, well, new since 2009, I think, the patch method. And put was supposed to be idempotent, where you just uploaded a new version to replace another one. Uh, but people, especially in Rails, before the newer versions, were using it uh, with actual diff content. 
And this is a, a great example because a put would be I re-upload the modified file and I expect the record to be changed. And changing a diff, if I apply it many, many times, it's going to break or add too many lines or whatever. And the diff is not idempotent. So that one got to have the patch method in HTTP, whereas the put method is assumed to be idempotent. So if you want to have a distributed system where you can retry operations many times, it's probably safer to have a put where you, you re-upload the content and having a patch that you can just apply once and after that, who knows what happens. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm still dealing with people who think that putting a query string on a get is the way to go, so this, this, oh, this all sounds wonderful to me. <laughs> query strings do make sense. The difference is when people call it REST and what they have is function names and arguments as query strings. This right. is different. But Go ahead, Simon. Well, this isn't the people who are calling it rest at this point. This is this is hangovers from long ago that still linger. On the other hand, even if they're not calling it that, putting those kinds of query strings on a get to change things, yeah. it's not just at HTTP. That that actually breaks pretty badly because you've got proxies and intermediaries all over the place that will yeah, do all- things that you don't expect. Absolutely. Yeah. The last thing I you had to do is have your get fit your your get call. You know, do something like place an order because you know suddenly you've discovered you've you've ordered four of the thing and not one or something. Yeah, I really wish I hadn't had this conversation just a month ago with somebody. I think I set them straight. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, there is no patch method in um in in web machine at this point, I believe. No, uh, um, it, it's been newer in the standard, so I'm guessing the adoption is going to be slow across all the tools. Right. So currently, no, Web Machine supports get, put, post, delete, and if you set it up to do so, it can support options and some things like that, but not patch and not, you know, any of the more optional sorts of methods either. Yeah. It, it's a pretty basic HTTP 1.1 implementation on, on purpose, right? It's not attempting to be you know, everything to everyone that wants to do anything on the web, although, you know, additions that are compatible with the standards are obviously, you know, welcomed and would be great to see. And in fact, I think once the HTTP BIS work really turns into HTTP 2.0 proper, uh, that's going to be an opportunity for some interesting changes in web machine. What's in HTTP BIS? I have not been following that, and I assume many of our listeners probably haven't either, so. Sure, so that's the standardization effort that started out as an attempt to change nothing, but fix the problem of the way the HTTP standards are written, which is that you know the <laughs> the core RFCs making up HTTP are very very dense and hard to read and cross-linked all over the place and redundant, and it's very hard to get it right, even if you're well-meaning. And you know, Web Machine was an attempt to fix help help fix that for some people in some ways to make it easier to do things right. The HTTP BIS effort, much more ambitious, different attempt, started out as an attempt to write a new standard that would simply be more sensibly organized and more sensibly written and reflecting reality to replace the HTTP standards. Uh, Late in the process, the working group decided and got approval to actually go a little farther than that. So there are some actual changes. It's not final, but it's pretty late in the process now. How does this relate to the speedy work, the SPDY 
Is that connected or is that a separate conversation? That's a separate thing. They're related in some interesting ways. You know, my hope is that the work on Speedy, some of it can feed into the HTTP standardization process over time, right? Speedy right now is deployed in a small number of very high-profile places, and it's not the same, but hopefully they can impact each other. Some of the decisions in Speedy, and certainly the HTTP BIS working group has been aware of them all along. Is there any possibility that Web Machine might support WebSockets in the future? Kind of. <laughs> so I, I believe I, I know the right way to add the ability to do WebSockets to Web Machine, and I'll describe that in a second. And uh, I'd be happy to work with someone and guide them if someone was so motivated to add it. But what would really be added would be support for the upgrade header and for handing off ownership of the client socket to arbitrary other code. You know, I'm personally of the opinion, and maybe this isn't the topic you wanted for the podcast in the first place, but that web sockets are nothing about the web and add nothing and are a bad idea and aren't HTTP-like. That said, lots of people want them anyway. Lots of people want lots of things that are bad ideas. And it should be perfectly fine for web machine to get out of your way when you want a web socket. And so that's the support that ought to be added. And it would be added pretty early in the decision tree when a client requests to upgrade to a different protocol. And you could supply a callback that would take over. And essentially, web machine would be done with that request and say, all right, here's the socket. Do what you want. That's how I figured you'd do it. I mean, I figure web, web sockets are good for certain types of things. I mean, if you're trying to do, like, a real-time chat, like in the, um, the Google's stock spreadsheet, you know, it seems that sending a new HTTP request for every character is just crazy overhead. I think the problem here is that WebSockets is the perfect example of a square peg being fit in a round hole. Somebody's wrong. Somebody is wrong on the Internet. <laughs> But I, I, I mean, the whole thing about HTTP, and if you go to that usual complaint people have about HTTP being about representing resources and documents, everything about a session starting from the cookies and whatnot ended up being a security nightmare in many, many, many ways and trying to specify how to have live state over something that is essentially stateless. And WebSockets is just one further step down that road. It's kind of very, very weird as a decision. I mean, the, the original thing is that I guess ideally would have used a different protocol rather than extending it, but the reality of things makes it so that it's more practical to reuse a browser everyone has rather than uh, just starting from scratch again. Well, the thing is, you know, the browser has become, in the old days, the browser was just a thing that could display web pages. And nowadays, it's sort of become a virtualized OS for running applications. You know, I mean, Google Docs or whatever, you know, it's not a web page anymore. This is a full-on desktop application. It just happens to run in a, a web browser. So, you know, the fact... I, mean, you I, I think that the big reason WebSockets were able to really be a thing and mattered initially isn't any, you know, real-time thing or anything like that, but simply the fact that on almost any network anywhere, you can get out if you're talking to a web server. And they're a way to subvert 
typical security or management controls, right? You can get out over port 80 or even other ports if the beginning of the conversation looks like HTTP. If you really just wanted TCP, well, we put TCP on your HTTP on your TCP, and now you can have it. <laughs> That's what it yeah. adds. It adds the ability to get around those basic mechanisms. Yeah, yeah we've, we've been using this to dodge things forever. I mean, I'm sort of a criminal here in that I wrote a book on XMLRPC a while ago, and I wrote one on cookies, too. You know, I, I guess I see WebSockets as continuing that long tradition of making bolting on things that aren't really part of the core web architecture and fitting them into kind of the browser environment, the it making it feel webby even if it's not really that tightly bound to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not trying to say, you know, nobody should do this, but more it's not really much at all like the web or HTTP. And it happens to piggyback on it because that's the way to get your connection across, just like it was for XML RPC. Yeah, or SOAP or a lot of other things. SOAP, talk about bad ideas. But yeah, it's sort of just HTTP has become sort of a standard way to just move bits from here to there, whether or not it's really the right mechanism. But I agree that, you know, if you're talking about doing something like data streaming, streaming audio from a website, HTTP is really not your best mechanism. There's, I'm sure, much better protocols out there, whether it's theoretically could be, for how to stream music out of out of a server than what we do now. With what we do now, but that being said, everybody uses HTTP. Well, the truth of the matter is, this podcast we won't download it over HTTP. I'm not sure that's the best protocol, really, for downloading large, you know, 30 or 40 megabyte files off the web off the internet but it's whatever it's what we use well it works pretty well for that sort of thing right i mean yeah. a, a file somewhere that's just a a resource you're going to put it somewhere once people are going to get it a whole bunch and they all want representations of the same thing i actually think for fairly static content that's large like that there's not much better than http over the internet yeah it's when you go to a certain level of interactivity that's Many connections per minute, typically short conversations that are perpetually changing and don't have the stability of resources, then you've kind of left the HTTP world. Well, I mean, the best example for these things are usually the torrent protocol that's being used, which is re-implementing parts of TCP with different congestion control over UDP so that you can talk to plenty of people at the same time and reorder things the way you want and get rid of some guarantees and things that broke the concept. But if you have one endpoint and not much more, HTTP is not a bad way to get a static file or document in general. And just to bring this all the way around, right, the answer to your initial question is, yeah, sure, we're open to adding WebSocket support to Web Machine. It's just that it, it will consist entirely of one more decision and one more endpoint on the diagram, right, which will be a you know, has the resource and client mutually requested an upgrade to a non-HTTP protocol. Right. And that's really all it takes. Yeah, I mean, you'd stick it after B3 or something, after the options thing, and then you just, you say, okay, here's, you'd simply hand back a module or a function the way that Yaws does it. Exactly. And, in fact, WebMachine can now run on top of Yaws, so people can do it 
pretty closely if they want to. Oh, cool. I, I, I rather like yours. Um, could you put could you put that addition to the diagram in a strange new color? <laughs> you're, you're leaving the known territory. Well, so in a sense, it's, it, it's another terminal, right? It's another place at which you end. And so it wouldn't be another path. It would be another exit. Just like, you know, any of those exits on the left column are simply, oh, this condition is true, so we're done here. It would be just like those, where a web machine wouldn't do anything interesting, but it would let you stop doing HTTP if you wanted to. So what's the status of the port The port to yours, you said, is working? What's the status of the port to Cowboy? I saw something on the web about that. Or what? I, I don't recall exactly if it's all the way done, but most of the work to make web machine portable across those other you know, web systems was in web machine. I don't personally, you know, use Cowboy much, so I, I'm not entirely sure, but there's definitely, you know, someone that was working on it. I suspect it's working now since he was working together uh, with Andrew Thompson and Steve Banoski, who respectively have done some, I think it was Andrew Thompson, it was definitely Steve Banoski, working on some Cowboy and Yaws pieces. Uh, so the short answer is I'm not sure. Okay. The other question I had was, uh, I have all my web machine code, I have a I don't know how many routes now, but I basically all the dispatch is just running out of one big file in the priv directory, sort of parent priv directory for my app. Is there a better way to sort of set up all those various routes to all the various resources besides having them in one file that has to get changed every time I add a new one? Yeah, there have been some things in more recent versions of Web Machine that let you extend uh, the dispatch and change it at runtime and have it be a bit more dynamic. But you know, it is definitely the case that when we started out, we went with a very, very simple model of dispatch, which you know, I think has some nice things going for it, and then it's just you know, a linear pattern matching system. But you can do you know, more dispatch on more features now, and you can request that dispatch entries be added or removed programmatically now. I actually have a little thing app I wrote that just monitors that dispatch file and Every time you, if you change it, it simply adds or removes rules from the running thing. So you don't have to, you don't have to do anything. You just have to save it and you know, wait a few seconds. So I'll stick. Yeah, I mean, show notes. if modifying a file is you know the workflow that works for you, then I I see nothing wrong with that, right? It's it really depends on the context your app is used in. Yeah, I'm just wondering if there are you know other other effective ways that I haven't thought of. That's sort of what I was getting at. Now, there's also a web machine port to Ruby, I believe, right? Do you guys, are you guys involved with that at all, or is that somebody, somebody else did? Yeah, so there have been ports of web machine of various degrees of completeness to Ruby, Clojure, Agda, Python, and Node.js. And I believe the Ruby one is the one that's the most complete. It's It was part of that that was done by someone who, you know, it's easier for Sean Cribbs to talk to me every day since we both work at Basho. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, each of those is a little bit different. None of them are exactly the same as Web Machine because, you know, they're for different programmers with different expectations. But I just think it's cool to see a few of the ideas of Web Machine, you know, like the fact that, you know, not everything should start out by having a different object or what have you forget than it does for put, leak out into other programming communities. To me, that's one of the best things about these ports is that it brings the idea of doing HTTP in these ways to, to more people. I'm trying to think what else to 
So are there any other big things coming up in Wet Machine? You know, are there any new features that, you know, upcoming versions that'll be exciting? Or is it sort of trying to be just boring and stable and just get So the, the big thing right now is that making it agnostic to the bit pushing framework underneath it. Uh, the yaws and cowboy and so on. Uh, when we first started Web Machine, we intended it for, to be that way. But pretty early on, it became obvious that from our point of view, there wasn't much value initially in doing so. And so we got more tightly coupled to MochiWeb than originally planned. And a few people in the past year or so have wanted to use other systems underneath it. And so making it agnostic to those again is the big work that's happening lately. For the most part, web machine is sort of at the stage that I would consider mature, right? There's, it's not changing much because it's just working. There are definitely changes that people could make that would be welcomed if they were done well, like what we talked about, about being able to escape out to web sockets or some other things like that. And once HTTP 2.0 is done, I'm sure we'll figure out a few other refinements. But by and large, you know, web machine is, you know, a working system. And so it definitely still sees, you know, little improvements for performance or bug fixes from time to time. But there's not a big open feature list right now. Always kind of a good thing, you know. It's like stability. Just, you know, it's like the next version isn't going to break something. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of something that I think in the last few years seems to be less popular, which is of letting a piece of software actually become done, and that'd be a good thing. Uh, right? You know, I mean, grep doesn't change that much these days. Yeah, I mean, they just you sort of assume grep, it's one of those things you sort of assume it's there. I don't I mean, I use it daily. I don't remember the last time I thought about it, though. It's sort of just, it's there. there, there there's a bunch of software laws that uh, a guy named Lemon, L-E-H-M-A-N, devised in the 80s and revised later, and basically the the gist of it is that a, a given piece of software is going to be less and less useful as people use it or not respond to their needs. And if it keeps responding to their need, there's just no reason to update it ever as long as it works. You'll have to keep maintaining software when the fact that you're using it creates a given evolution in it and it becomes less and less fit to be used for what it was because users get used to it and know what it's supposed to do or it has competition. But if it's doing the right thing, which is implementing HTTP and HTTP doesn't move, it should not have to be updated that much in the first place. Yeah, I mean, just all you got to do really is just fix an occasional bug or, you know, performance improvements or things like that, which you guys seem to be doing. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that there's any features for what it should do that it doesn't do now. I don't think I've, I think the only bug I've ever found in Web Machine and I forgot to take a screenshot, was one time in the debugger, the, 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 the line that showed you what your, the thing did, did something weird and sort of went on a diagonal that it wasn't supposed to. But that was like the most severe bug I've ever seen, and it was not particularly severe. Awesome software. We'll put that paper in the, in the show notes. All right, I think we've sort of covered the topic. Anything else anybody wants to add? I guess we're going to go to the picks or something. Let's, let's go to the picks. Justin, why don't you lead us off with the first picks? Oh, well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, when it comes to picks here, I think going and understanding the actual 
Web, HTTP RFC is, is something that shockingly through going and talking about web machine, I've discovered most people don't do partially because they're hard, but partially because they have libraries that have taught them to use it wrong. And so going and doing that hard bit of reading, if you're programming on the web, I think you owe it to yourself. So go read the standards. That's my big pick. Maybe you guys should just like add the diagram into the front of the standard to say, this is what it's supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you know, Mark Nottingham is one of the guys on that chair, and he and I have talked about, uh, sorry, on that uh, working group, and he and I have talked about that a bunch, not about adding it explicitly to the standard, because it's actually kind of hard to do that in the context of a uh, an RFC to use a product diagram like that, but uh, of using it as an explanatory tool. Uh, Simon, fix? Yeah, I uh, I have a pick which is for something that's a little more approachable than the specs. Uh, we have a book on the way called High Performance Browser Networking from Ilya Grigoric, and uh, I've put the link in. You'll be able to get it. Uh, right now, there's a draft. It's free to read. Um, and it looks at HTTP. It looks at Speedy. talks about WebSockets and WebRTC and some other things, mostly in the context of performance, but I think a lot of it will also be useful to people who are trying to find their way through, you know, what all these different pieces are. Uh, Bird, what do you got? You got anything interesting for a pick? Uh, what I've got in the pick this week is related to REST in a way. Uh, it's a thing called Hyperglyph. And basically, part of Hyperglyph is everyone's been doing REST wrong for years. Uh, the whole idea behind REST, I mean, there's a few elements, but everyone always forgets about the uh, hypermedia clause in there which says that the data type you're sending back to people should give them links or the equivalent of links to know where to go next and ways to submit data and forms automatically so that you could write some piece of code that does the auto-discovery but can also submit resources on behalf of a user or whatever. And people have been pushing for JSON, XML, and whatnot for years, omitting that part. And one of the only data types or standards that supports it is the Uh, HTML format, which gives you forms for post and get. And your browser is able to build on that, and you're able to have something automated. So Hyperglyph is uh, by a guy who's nicknamed Tef in Scotland. And he wrote this new way of do well, not a new way, but it's basically a new format that lets you do the equivalent of REST, but machine-readable for machine-to-machine which is actually pretty interesting as an approach and has the idea of forms and how to send the communications and whatnot. And the link I sent is to the GitHub project, but there's a talk in there where he explains how he built it, why he built it, and the principles behind it. And it's a pretty cool piece of technology that uh, sets you, but that forces you to think a bit better about how you think you're doing REST in general. Cool. So I got two picks. So somebody's come out with something called the Concurrent Schema. It's uh, an implementation of scheme that they're working on that runs on the Erlang VM. It's still pretty early phase, but uh, I, I have fond memories of scheme from when I was in university, so I just want to throw that out. The other thing is there's a course on Coursera. Uh, if you're not familiar with Coursera, it's basically online university-level courses from top-ranked universities all, all over the place. But I don't know that it doesn't have dates yet, but it's on Automata by Jeffrey Ullman, who's one of the co-authors of the Dragon book, the classic book on compilers. And it's on automata theory and finite state machines and all that, all those things. So I think that will be like, would be really interesting. 
So those are my two. Uh, Coursera, again, and just, I guess, Coursera itself, if you want to just you know, further your education about any number of topics, they're adding, they've got a list of, you know, range of courses, everything from music to computers to history to writing, you name it, they probably got it. And they're now branching out beyond English as well, so they got courses in Spanish and French and a few other languages. We should probably get them to do a course on Erlang. 